Alright, if you've got Bibles, and I hope you do, you're more than welcome to open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be hanging out today. When I preach, I try and not just dump the verse on you without giving you any sort of context about where it's coming from or what we're talking about. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of context, but it's not going to be about the individual chapter. I'm just going to give you a really brief overview of part of what is happening with 2 Corinthians and why Paul is writing this letter in the first place. All right. Uh, so, there are two letters to the Corinthians. This is the second one. There are letters that we probably don't have, but these are the ones that made it into the Bible. And part of what Paul is doing when he's writing this letter to the Christians at Corinth is uh, there are some opponents of his that have come into the church, and they're actually leveling some pretty serious accusations against Paul and against his legitimacy and against his ministry and his authority. And so part of what he's writing back with this letter is it's kind of a reaction. And if you read it, you kind of feel him answering quite a few of these things that they're leveling against him. So some of the things uh, that they're bringing against him is that he's unreliable. Uh, so, man, his travel plans change all the time. He says he's going to be somewhere, but then he's not. Can he even be trusted? Is he worth following? Uh, they talk about how he's a powerful writer, but in person, he's not really all that impressive. Man, he knows what to say uh, when he's back writing from far away, but when he's in person, he's kind of scrawny and he doesn't speak very well. Um, they talk about how if he really had an authentic ministry, he would actually accept money for what he's doing because he's doing it for free. So if it was um, of high quality, surely he would take some form of payment for what he's doing. Uh, and finally, they were, they were comparing themselves to him and they were saying, we actually have direct revelation from God and we have more spirituality and are just more spiritual than him. And so in all these different ways, they're kind of trying to undermine who he is and what he's done. And the church at Corinth is like, man, do we believe these guys or do we believe Paul? And so there's these opponents are setting themselves up and they're saying, Look, if you compare our ministry to his, we have the money, we have the financial backing, we have the fancy clothes, we look good compared to him, so our ministry is worth listening to. We have the credentials, we have the letters of recommendation from all these big important people saying that you should listen to us instead of Paul. Uh, you could compare our spirituality and say that we are more spiritual than him, so you should listen to us instead of him. And finally... They're looking at just the external like comfort levels of his ministry and saying, look, if you compare what his ministry looks like to ours, ours looks far more successful than his does. Like, Have you ever imagined uh, what it would be like if Paul, at the end of his journeys, pulled together all of his supporters for one of those like fundraising dinner kind of things, and he starts showing some of his pictures about his journeys and like, hey guys, here's how my ministry went. And he clicks up the first slide and it's like, yeah, okay, here's the city I was in. This is a picture of me. Um, I was preaching there. It didn't go so well. They actually had to lower me out of a basket from the city so that I would live. Uh, click. Uh, yeah, this is the time I was preaching. I went for a while. A guy fell asleep. He fell out the window. Click. This is the time. I was preaching. It didn't go so well again. I got dragged out of the city. They tried to stone me and kill me. Again, didn't go so well. Click. This is the time I got shipwrecked. Oh, Sorry. This is the second time I got shipwrecked. And you could go on and on and you could see 
how, man, if you're just looking at some of the externals of Paul and who he is, you could see how these guys might say, man, if we're comparing our ministry to his, just based on the things on the outside, we look like we have a stronger ministry than him. We look like we are worth listening to more than him. And the reason I go into all of that is because the danger for us, in a sense, is to do the opposite. It's so easy for us to look at other people and look at their externals and compare them to our externals and make judgments about the authenticity and the authority of our ministry compared to theirs. Man, how could I have a ministry when I can't do what they do? How could I be effective for God when I can't say what they say? Uh, And we're going to look at what he has to say about this through the lens of 2 Corinthians 4. So uh, I'm coming from the NIV. I feel like it captures the heart of it the best. Um, But at 2 Corinthians 4, we're going to start in verse 5, and we'll read through to verse 9. And Paul says this, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. And we're struck down, but we're not destroyed. So today, all we're doing is we're talking about treasure. If you're one of those note-taking types of people, I've got four points that we're going to hit. All right, We're going to talk about what the treasure is. We're going to talk about what it's in. We're going to talk about who it's from. And we're going to talk about what it changes. All right, What it is, what it's in, who it's from what it changes. So first one, what it is. We get the definition of this treasure in a whole bunch of jumbled up words at the end of verse 6. So it talks about how God made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And if we were just to boil that down to the really simple core, what is the treasure? It is the gospel, okay? A lot of times when people are preaching, they'll do the gospel invitation at the end, but this is the gospel. If you're not a Christian, the good news is that even today, you can be one. God is glorified. He's made to look good by saving sinners. Okay, We had no grounds of our own to be saved. We all sinned. We all went our own way. We all deserve punishment, and rightly so, from God. And so he, in his justice, could have left us to our own ends. He didn't have to do anything, but the good news is that he did. What Jesus did by coming and living the perfect life that we couldn't and dying and paying for our sins is he actually opened up access to salvation and life and intimacy with God that we could have never had beforehand. And if you don't know God, that's on the table for you today. That's for free, all right? The treasure that we're dealing with here is when you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, when you know 
who Jesus is and when you know what he's actually done for you. So again, if we're to boil it down really simple, what is the treasure that we're actually dealing with today? It's the gospel. It's salvation. It's knowing Jesus and knowing what he's done. It is so, so simple. So that's the treasure. What is it in? We have this treasure in jars of clay. So the image of jars of clay, when you imagine a jar of clay, chances are what you imagine is not drastically different than what they would have imagined back then. All right? The technology around jars of clay has not changed much in a thousand years. So there's not a whole lot of illustrating that I feel like I need to do here for you, but to help flesh it out, uh, clay is very accessible now and back then. It's not a rare resource. If a farmer finds a vein of gold in one of their paddocks, they're going to tell all their friends and be excited. If he finds a big vein of clay that just covers the whole paddock, he's not going to be excited because there's clay everywhere. Okay? It's the same thing back then. It's widely known, readily available, and because it's readily available, it was super cheap. Because it's super cheap, it was not even worth shifting when you moved from one house to the other. Okay? They did that back then too. So when they would move, it wasn't even worth them moving the pots because they might break in transit. And so it's cheaper and easier just to leave them there and buy what you need where you shift to next time because they're so cheap, they're so invaluable, so uh, readily available. Once they're fired, uh, they're virtually indestructible, which means that you can actually put them in the ground and nothing changes. So you can bury them and they're just fine for years and years and years and years. Uh, And we'll circle back around to that in a second. They can hold a variety of things. You could put water in there, wine. You can hold food, grain. You can use them for cooking. You can even use them to store documents in. For those of you who know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know that they found that because the guy was just chucking rocks into a cave and then he heard a clay pot break. Look inside and there's the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right. Um, What... Paul is drawing out with this analogy, he's got treasure in jars of clay, is this idea of a coin hoard. So we talked about how you can bury your clay jars and they're fine for a long, long time. What people used to do back in the day, if there were times of instability or times of warfare and they were worried about people taking their stuff, is they would put their treasure in their clay jars and they would go and bury it somewhere so that they couldn't get to it. And there's like thousands of these coin hoards out there that have been discovered thus far, and they're still finding them now. Uh, They vary in size from like 50 coins all the way up to like 50,000 coins. And again, they were buried just to keep them safe. So this is the image that Paul's kind of trying to draw out. It's this thing that's really valuable buried in this thing that is not very valuable at all. And so what he's trying to show us is that all of the value of this clay jar is tied up in what it contains and not in the jar itself. All right? If I had a clay jar up here and I filled it up with gold coins and I said, do any of you want this? Chances are there would be a lot of you that would be quite enthusiastic about taking it home because it is tremendously valuable. But if I took out all of those gold coins and I took all of my son's nappies from the past seven months, and I crammed them in there, and I said, do any of you want to take this home today? I would be worried about you. (laughs) 
if you said yes. And I would also take a down payment for the next however many months he's going to be in nappies because you can have those too. All right? The, it's the same jar. The jar hasn't changed, but what has completely changed your attitude and your reaction to it is what it contains because all of the value in it is found in what it contains. Now, there is a chance, a small chance, that there is someone in here who is an ancient ceramic art connoisseur, and you're thinking to yourself, ah, but what about the Rue Gagnel brush washer? Does that not mean that there is a way to find value in the jar itself? And I would say, hold on, let me fill in everyone else first, and then we'll talk about that. So, the Rue Guanyo brush washer is the most expensive piece of pottery that has ever sold in the history of art pottery that I'm aware of. So, in 2017, it sold in China somewhere for the equivalent of 54 million New Zealand dollars. Okay? 54 million New Zealand dollars. It is a 900, it's like an unfathomable amount of money to pay for a clay thing. It's a 900-year-old ceramic bowl that they used to use for washing their paintbrushes and their calligraphy brushes. Does anyone want to see what a $54 million ceramic bowl looks like? Do you want to pop the one slide up that I provided? Is anyone underwhelmed? <laughs> You'd kind of expect, uh, like, more size or greater detail or something. Even on the website, it calls it small and unassuming, which I just think is the art world kind of being like, we know, we know, it doesn't seem like much. <laughs> that thing is only 13 centimeters large, right? It's got a the reason it's so expensive, apparently, is because it's got a turquoise glaze. Um, if you find ones that are more zoomed in, it looks kind of like ice cracks, which apparently is quite important. Um, it's got classic proportions, and the value in it is because of not only the glaze, but the art, the craftsmanship behind it, the history, the fact that it's so old, that it came from one of the very few really important kilns made by really skilled people, I'm not an art person. Um, and you could look at something like that and say, well, it seems like if you are a clay pot, and this is the analogy we're running with, it seems like it's entirely possible to find your value in your clay potness instead of what you contain. This thing does. But I want you to notice two things about this brush washer. The first thing I want you to notice is that there is nothing wrong with it. You could find different photos again. There is nothing wrong with it. There are no cracks. There are no imperfections. There's no blemishes. There's no pieces missing. Uh, if I were to allow my three-year-old to have her way with that brush washer for half of a day, it would not come back in the same like condition, right? She would mean well, but it just wouldn't. 
How much would its value change or even plummet if all of a sudden there is one big scratch or if there is one big piece missing and that's just one thing wrong with it, all right? The second thing I want you to notice is that there's nothing actually in it. There is nothing in it. What that means is that if a scratch happens, if it breaks, if it somehow gets damaged, then all of its value all of a sudden disappears because all of its value is tied up in itself and not in what it actually contains because it contains nothing. And so, listen, the point is, technically, it is possible for you to try and find value in your externals, but the pressure to be perfect is tremendous and I would argue crushing and impossible. It is possible to try and find value in your gifts or find value in your appearance or your supposed status or your level of wealth. You can try, but as soon as those things get cracked or changed or broken in any way, all of the value disappears like dust in the wind. And there is a way to find your value in something far more concrete and far more satisfying, and it's finding it with what lies inside and not what lies outside. So you've got the treasure, it's the gospel, what is in, it's in jars of clay, which means that the value is found based on what's inside and not what's outside. Who is it from We'll see in uh, verse 6 that God made his light shine in our hearts, which is just an illustration of him showing us his goodness. And then in verse 7, he picks it up. We are jars of clay to show that this surpassing power is from God and not from us. The Bible is very, very clear that all of the goodness and all of the ability to understand the gospel that we have comes from him and not from us. It is a gift. No clay jar gets to decide what it's used for. It's not sitting there holding wine because it rejected the grain. It's holding wine because the person who owns it put the wine into it. Any idea of the gospel, any appreciation for it that you have comes from God. It's not yours. The Bible uses language like in Ephesians chapter 2, man, you were dead before God did anything to you. Salvation is a gift from God through grace, not a result of anything that you have done. It is entirely based on Him doing things to you. And what this should do in us is it should squash any amount of pride that we have in our, again, our gifts. It should squash anything that we take pride in because of our personality uh, or our potential or our status because it's not about us. It's about what we contain. All of that stuff is a gift from Him. And if we find value in it, there's danger uh, in it cracking and breaking. The point isn't you. The point is Him. Finally, uh, what does it change? What does it change for us? It should change how we witness, but it should also change how we live. So I want you to hear this. Christianity and God nowhere promises to make our life easy. I think sometimes we believe that too much. Paul describes his experiences of the Christian life 
in verse 8. He says, we are hard pressed on every side. That's the image of like grapes getting squished for wine, all right? Has anybody felt like that? He talks about how they're perplexed. Man, I don't understand. I just have questions that just aren't getting answered. I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to even decide what to do. He talks about feeling persecuted. He talks about feeling struck down. What if that is far more of a normal feeling in Christianity than feeling like you have to pull everything together and present this perfect picture of a perfect life all the time with the ideal marriage and obedient kids and a regular quiet time and whatever other expectations we set for ourselves. What if, as Christians, it actually is okay to admit that you are feeling hard-pressed and you are feeling perplexed and there are times where you do feel uh, down, but it's how you handle those things that makes all the difference, okay? As Christians, we experience those things just like people who aren't Christians experience them. The people who don't know God are not going to be saved by you flawlessly handling everything that life throws at you in your own strength. How they're going to be saved is by watching you feel and experience the same things that they do, but wondering how in the world do you go through that and not get crushed like I do? How do you feel the weight of those questions but not be driven to despair like I am every single time? How do you actually balance all of those things out? They're, they're attracted by the treasure in you, not by your ability to do it really well. Right? The whole idea here is that if we wait until we're in this point where we mythically feel like we're put together and we have the right answers and we have the right Bible knowledge and we have the right apologetics, then we'll actually make an attempt to share the treasure with people. But if we wait until we feel like we're in a good place, look, I love you, we're going to have like seven days of fruitful ministry in our whole life, and that's being generous. There's always going to be things that we're going to have excuses for or reasons why we can't or reasons why we come up short. But what if it's not about you? What if it's about what's inside of you? Can you see that there's a reason that he uses the illustration of treasure in a clay pot instead of treasure in a safe? He doesn't use the illustration of a treasure in a maximum security uh, I was going to say penitentiary, but that's not the right word. Well, it's not under lock and key, all right? There is no guards. There are no security details assigned to this treasure because it's not a treasure that's designed to be held onto. Your treasure, what he's put in you, is designed to be made as readily available to people who want it. And it's just that, like it really is that simple. Man, how in the world do you go through that and not get crushed? Look, man, it's not in me. I know that. It's the treasure that he's put in me. Let me tell you about him. You can have it. How do you wrestle with those questions and not be driven to despair? Man, it's not because I'm all put together and it's not because I have all the right answers. It's because of the treasure inside of me. Do you want some? Like, it really is 
that simple. He does the work. It's all about him. So part of what I'm challenging you today with is, look, please don't bury it. It's not designed to be a coin hoard. It's designed to be out there for people to see it and actually appreciate it and be changed by it, just like you have. So two questions to finish with. Um, the first one is, where are you actually finding your value, if you're honest with yourself? Are you finding it in what you are, or are you finding it in what you actually have been given? The second one is, have you buried your treasure, or is it in a place where it's actually freely accessible to those around you who need it most? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that you have given us a treasure that we could never have earned on our own. I pray for all of us that our value um, would not be found in things that we can do or things that can be taken away so quickly, but we would find our hope and our strength in you and what you've done in us. Uh, And I pray that when the time comes that we would readily share